From the founding of our country to the 80s was like conflict after conflict and adversity after adversity. Like you really had to fight to be free over and over and over again. And first in the 60s and then in the 90s, you just started to see like, I think the lack of pressure combined with the complacency that comes with comfort and wealth. You started to see a deterioration of these institutions that drew people together and then technology like threw fire on it and or threw gas on it. And so now I think you're seeing this sort of collective temper tantrum and that's, that's happening today. And so it's a time for, uh, I think, renewal, which is a good opportunity, but we just take it a little too caught up. And, and so you know, politics, when, it, when you're at sort of like lowest common denominator, that person's identity or is associated with their politics. And that's just, this is not true. Human beings are complicated. Bob and I are joined this afternoon on The Climb with a new, really good friend of mine, Michael Davidson. Got the honor to meet him this summer up in Telluride, and it has been a whirlwind journey since. Getting to know him, getting to know Gen Next, becoming a member of Gen Next, and we'll we'll talk all about the mission of Gen Next around education, economic growth, and global security, but Bob and I are really excited. Michael's one of the most dynamic individuals I've ever met. So we're going to dive into a lot of different categories and life and pursuits and happiness. Listen to the climb. We're just thrilled to have you today, Michael. Welcome. I love it. Thank you. Thank you, Bernie. You got a, you got a lot to live up to with that intro there. <laughs> no, no pressure. Pursuits. I mean, you end with pursuits and happiness. It's okay. All right. <laughs> you know, we're gonna we're gonna set the bar high, and then America's on the line, and then just go it. higher, and then just go <laughs> higher. So, Michael, okay. before we jump into you know truly your your passions around Gen Next, I mean, we we want to know about you. So, just give us a little background where you grew up, what defined you along the way, and got you to where you are today. Oh man, um, define now. I thought I was going to get away with giving you a, the 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 simple, quick bio. No softballs here. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, let, let me give you your current state. Uh, my my wife and I are live in Southern California. She's from North Carolina. I'm from. Uh, I lived in Texas for a while, but I was split between California and Texas. I always felt like I was one of those, you know, the bumper sticker. I wasn't born in Texas, but I got there as fast as I could, <laughs> and so. And we have four kids. I have a, a son who's almost 11, and I have um, two six-year-old girls, and I have uh, a one-year-old uh, uh, baby boy. And so I think one of the biggest things about me, I've always wanted to be a dad. Uh, I've always wanted to be an awesome dad. I feel like it's a, one of the greatest purposes in life. If you care about the world, care about doing good things, it's just an incredible opportunity. So I'm very blessed. And then before that, though, I, I guess I just I grew up doing wrestling, judo, pretty competitively. I have five siblings, moved to Texas sort of abruptly when I was 16 years old. And then I got to work and live on a ranch. And so in Texas, I did everything from, I did a lot with draft horses, almost everything you can imagine to a horse I did. And that was, that was just awesome. I mean, super awesome. It was a, that was a tough time in my life, but it was at least leading up to it and just being, you know, working with your hands and working with the animals. That was incredible. And I just, I had some a great experience in Texas. I, I got into ranching. I wrestled at Arlington High School for a year. 
I transferred to Richland High School and I made a massive turn, did some theater. And then I got really into theater. So I was like ranching, wrestler, judo, jock, martial arts, and then this theater, theater. guy. Uh, <laughs> but the, yeah, it, and that was pretty, I got exposed to people I never thought I would have been exposed to in uh, my time in Texas, uh, just all across the board. Uh, Michael, where, where do you life. fall? Where do you fall in the lineup of uh, five siblings? I'm number four. And so number four. Okay. That, that, so wrestling and judo was probably like really important in the, in the lineup of the kids. Right. Well, so, it was <laughs> <a sense. laughs> yeah. My, uh, it, I mean, it was, it was a dominant, uh, role in the fam- in the family growing up. I mean, it was very, very dominant. I thought from the, the bulk of my life, that was all I was going to do for my entire life. I never even considered anything different to be honest. Yes. Yeah, so I have, I goes girl, boy, girl, me, and then girl, boy, about I think from the oldest to the youngest, about twenty years apart. And oh, uh, that's fun. Yeah, it was super cool. I'm very, I'm very blessed. I got, I have awesome siblings. Uh, but what was interesting for me is, for a long time, I was the youngest, and I guess I take on some of those qualities. And then I was the middle-ish for a period of time, and then I was like the oldest of the youngest, uh, having to, you know, especially we moved to Texas. I, I moved with my mom and little brother and sister, and so you know, took on sort of a, a large role in my younger siblings life at that time. So it was a pretty, so getting to experience, I think if you're into family of origin stuff, there were a lot of ups and downs, but I'm super blessed because I I experienced so much of, I guess, family of origin from so many different angles. So anyway, I guess the things, I guess one other thing is after getting into theater and then I, I, I did a program at TCC that was in the Tarrant County College in the humanities and, and just the power of ideas and leadership and the role that a person's a person could play in other people's lives and and in bending history it just captivated me and uh, and so that became i think a real seed that was planted or maybe watered when i was wrestling i'd had this experience in russia i got to go compete in russia i went twice we went to russia kazakhstan ukraine uzbekistan and we went before and after the fall of the of the, the, the soviet union and so being exposed at a young age to people who had no freedom, no idea of freedom, and here I am like homesick and obsessed with this idea of going to the McDonald's in Red Square. And this is, this is something that was just totally removed from their reality. That really blew my mind. And then I was, uh, I was, I was wearing some Russian warm-ups in, in, um, in the Red Square walking around in this this military officer was asking, you know, he says, Americansky, and he's asking stuff, something in Russian. And I asked the translator, like, what's he asking me? And he says, he wants to know if you're an American. It's like, I'm wearing my Russian digs. How did he know? And he says, he, Americans get told this a lot. He, you could, he could tell you're an American because you walk like you're free. And I was very young, but it, it never left me. That idea of this sort of very romantic, abstract concept could affect the way I move in the world. And so I think at a very early age, the idea of, uh, and then being exposed to a lot of different types of people and a lot of ups and downs in life, I think started to weave into me finding my, my deep purpose, which is sort of to it, it make a big difference in people's lives and, and advance ideas that, that make the world better. So I guess that's a bit of my, my story and what shaped me. No, that's great. You know, I, my oldest daughter is just completely entrenched in theater. And this year has been particularly hard for her because 
she normally gets to be on stage and perform in front of all of her peers and her family and friends and grandparents. And because of COVID, she couldn't do that. It was interesting this year because they they did a good job. They ended up making the play into a movie. And then we all got to socially distance in the auditorium and watch the movie. So, oh, you know, cool. kind of an unintended consequence was yeah. that I got to see my daughter in a movie, which was really cool. But <laughs> yeah, you innovated. That's, that's awesome. awesome. It was it was really Don't neat. And, yeah. and, you know, it was hard for her, but with the end product, you know, she was proud of. But I'm, I'm going to mess this up. But it, I asked her a long time ago, you know, what what draws you to theater? Why Why do you, you know, enjoy it so much? And she said, you know, you just get to escape and be whoever you want to be up on that stage. So, I mean, was was any of that kind of in the back of your mind? Like, was it an escape for you? Were you just curious about it? What what drew you to it? Because it's a powerful thing and, and people either get it or they don't. I think just the opportunity to create. And then when you create the, the I mean, I guess similarly themed of being able to cr- create communicate the creation and see how it lands and affects people was a very special thing. And then I think being able to kind of, I don't know about transform, transform, you're definitely transforming into a character because a character, one of the things my original theater director had had really talked about is that these stories are are about the most important parts in in a character's life. And so you're really getting to kind of channel a very important ideal that's going to relate to a lot of different people. And so, you know, Stephen Pressfield, the famous author, uh, incredible novelist. Uh, My favorite. Talk- Is he really? He's incredible. Oh, yeah. Uh, he writes a lot about the muse and how, uh, you know, and, and like there's a, there's, a, there's a higher order that you need to summon. And, you know, I'm Catholic. And so I definitely believe that in my context, that you're sort of tapping into something to create and share. And, uh, and so that experience was really powerful. In terms of specific, like playing on different roles, I got to play it does take you into different worlds and different identities in ways that you just would never expect. I remember I played a father who was dying of cancer. And in the, in the audition, there was a moment where I had to, I had to reunite with my son. And I remember feeling that very viscerally. And it, it's a tough thing to describe for people who haven't experienced that, but just the connection to a character. And it's really interesting of being a dad now. I still think of that moment on stage of connecting with my, you know, the character was my son. And then I also got to play like, you know, it wasn't a Lorca play. That was really funky. It was at uh, a theater out in, um, uh, in Fort Worth outdoors. Uh, so I got to, I got to do some, I think, cool different stuff. I went to Sage and Silo theater. They did a lot of like sort of risk, risque, uh, plays that were really fun and different. Like the director, I remember we did You Can't Take It With You, which is this wholesome, wholesome play but from about 100 years ago about, you know, just be grateful for what you have. And this family, written over 100 years ago, like he did just invite all these random people into their home. It was recently on Broadway a few years ago. But the director in Texas, he had like, there's a crazy aunt or like a, like a crazy guest who ends up coming into the home. He casted a transvestite to, be the, to play that role. And and just to sort of illustrate that, like, look, all these people come from walks, these different walks of life. And so that exposed me to a lot of different, really incredible life stories and being able to play this romantic lead in a story, which ended up, I ended up getting lucky because I was signed on as the understudy, but then I ended up getting to do a run of the show. It was a super cool experience, but just be, you know, you're in these environments that like I would, if I wasn't doing theater, I would never get to experience some semblance of 
those realities. So good, good for your daughter. I hope she, hope she continues with it. It's a special thing. It always has to stay with you in some way. Yeah, no, I, I hope she does too. She's, she's incredibly talented. Um, Michael, you mentioned a couple of times, just the, the impact and importance of, of being a dad. And uh, I feel the same way. I uh, made a couple of reconnaissance calls before this uh, podcast. And Uh-oh. so I, I got to ask, you know, your I think you mentioned it's it, your youngest son. Is it Bo? Uh-huh. And y'all, y'all adopted Bo, right? So can you talk oh, yeah. about that process and kind of how you went through that? Oh, it was incredible. I've always wanted, I, actually, the, one of the jobs I tried to get out of college, I ended up going to college in the Bay Area, California, and then I wanted to move back to Texas. And I tried to get a job at Gladney's, the adoption agency. It didn't work out. I didn't get the job. But um, but the passion stuck with me. And I don't, you know, I, growing up, I never had, I never had really experience with adoption. I didn't, I didn't know anybody who it wasn't a dominant thing. I just always wanted to. I think the idea of being able to just provide sort of an unconditional loving environment just to a, a little life that may not have otherwise have had it was just always drew, drew to me. And so a few years ago, my first three kids uh, the, and the twins, we were surprised and blessed by them. And so once, once after my twins were born, it was like, look, we're going to have to, we got to get organized. We have to. We have to. <laughs> <laughs> and so we started on the process of figuring out what's the right pathway for us. And so anybody who has adopted, you look at foster to adopt, foster care, what age. It's a very curious, strange process early on because you're, you're having to sort of articulate and express things that you never really have thought about. You feel really awkward about it. So we, we started that process. And then fast forward, we ended up bringing somebody on that it wasn't a fit where it was like, it was really bad. The person was pretty negligent. And so we wasted a lot of time and money early on. So we got recommended to a person by this guy, Dave Hollis. Anyway, so what you got recommended to this attorney. And so we start with this attorney. He's like, it's going to take us a year and a half because you have three other kids and it's going to take a while. And it happened. In, so we went through all the process of certifications. We had to do the, you know, the first aid and get our home studied and all this stuff. And we had our sort of criteria-ish. And then fast forward, last August, I was in, we did a Gen X trip to Poland and Germany for the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I think I was either leaving Auschwitz or meeting Lech Walesa. Like it was like something really intense. And uh, I got an email and saying, you know, baby boy in Nevada. And so you, you scramble into this process. And so my son and my wife, because I wasn't able to get back, went to go meet him at foster care, which is like cradle. It's technically called cradle care, but basically foster care. Uh, or maybe it's practically cradle care, technically foster care. So anyway, so he goes, they go and they meet him and they just, they fall in love. And we're learning about his story. And then we were able to, we brought him home later and right after actually Labor Day, I think. And so that has been an unbelievable journey. All of my kids are obsessed with him. Last night they had a dance party and he's like loving it. I think adoption transforms anybody whose life it touches. And so if anybody out there, your listeners is considering it, I 100, like do it. It was, I was frightened, completely scared. When I became a dad the first time, and then a dad to twins, twin girls, and then a, a dad and an adoption. Each time I was frightened about my worthiness to provide in, in these unique circumstances. And, you know, you just have faith and keep going. And then you just see how beautiful it is on the other side. So it's been an incredible experience. My oldest son, and I'll shut up with this. My, my oldest son, um, 
uh, I was I have this book idea about the role that, that fatherhood could play in, in building great societies. And my son and I were chilling in the, in the jacuzzi, and he's like, "Hey, Daddy, how's your book going along?" I go, oh, <laughs> "I've been having, I've been prioritizing it. It's not good." And he goes, "You should really work on that." As he takes a sip of his drink that he thinks is a margarita, and he says, <laughs> "I'm like, I know, I know." And he goes, "You think you know, like when." You think that, that like before I was born, your soul interviewed with my soul? I go, what do you mean? And he goes, like, I'm chilling with God. And you come up and you're like, I want to be your dad. And, and you had to do that for me and for the girls and for Bo. And I thought it was the most powerful concept that you have to earn being a father. And, and your whole life is meant to like, you know, your purpose is to be reminded that you had to earn being a father. And so with, with, with all of my kids, I feel that in a really big, big way. And with Bo, given that, that he is adopted, there's that sort of heightened sense of duty to sort of make sure that he grows up in a home that he knows that he is unconditionally loved and he's a little miracle because his birth mom chose to bring him into this world and and then now we're stewards of the early stages of his incredible legacy so it's for all all the kids it's just it's super awesome and, and adoption has just been and an, a trend I, I can't when i try to articulate it it's like I, I feel like i'm uh exaggerating or embellishing but every cliche of it changes your life it's you can't really understand it unless you experience it it's incredible so you you obviously moved around a lot early on and then ended up at school at, at Berkeley. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Before, it's funny. I, you know, I went to, I did this, the Cornerstone program at TCC, which is awesome. I got really into being a nerd and ideas. And, <laughs> uh, you know, how do people live? I was, it, was, it was so new to me. Now, I always got good grades, but I was way more of an athlete. I was not like, just I just got good grades. He's supposed that's what you're supposed to do. It wasn't because of some like pursuit of you know best self. It was just like you know get your stuff together and get yeah, great. Go get it done. Yeah, yeah get it done. Um, because it's more of a function of overachieving than it is living. And so anyway, so I, when I but when I went to I went first theater and then and then TCC, it, it did really expose me to like wow, there really are big ideas about how to live and how the world should be. And so I became very enamored with that, and then I and, and then I went to Berkeley, and I got really involved. I tried like tried to get involved in like every group, political group, nonprofit groups, all this stuff. And then I happened to be and and Berkeley is a place where you can't kind of have an idea, you can't have a curiosity. You need to have an opinion, and if you have an opinion, you're going to be under attack. And so it was like whoa. So I had to learn pretty quickly to to develop a, a worldview and, and back it up. And, uh, which was good, you know, it forced me to kind of raise my game, but it isn't good for free thought in, in that sense. And so I got really active in politics really as a way to sort of help, I think, young people, including myself, live freely. And that, that became a very important theme to me. And then being there during 9-11, and it was a very hostile, very hostile anti-American place after 9-11. Everywhere else in the country was completely unified and mourning, but it, it, in Berkeley, it was not like that. And that, that 
that scared me and activated me in many ways. And so that that experience sort of it it carried with me quite a bit. What why was that in Berkeley? Like, why do you think specifically in that area you were, you were feeling that? Uh, well, Berkeley's a it has this history of it's sort of sad because it actually has a great history of being the sort of you know foundation of the free speech movement and really have a, a legacy of freedom. But at some point, it got really taken over by radical hippies, and they just they have a, a sort of political view that's I think more focused on control unfortunately, than it is focused on freedom. And, and so that just spreads. And so the whole, the whole city is, is like that. I really feel like, you know, you get into the sort of America as this imperialist uh, empire and a, a force of, 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 of evil throughout, throughout its existence. And that's just what the sort of dominant thought is of the city, but also the, the most of the faculty and then as a result, the student body ends up reflecting that type of activism. So, uh, but it, it is pretty gnarly. I mean, that's, it was a lot of, it was pretty, I mean, I had a, cause I moved from Texas, right. And I had just been on a ranch and I still, I was, I was sort of a weird, especially at that point in my life. I remember, I don't know, it was like, you know, wrestled judo and then theater, but I had been on a ranch. And so I had a truck. And they did not like my truck. They'd always like egg it. <laughs> it was always some. I remember I'd walk from like to my apartment with the American flag on my shoulder, but like with my stuff. Because I, I just like, maybe I came from a meeting and we're hanging up a flag and I'd get confronted. And so all my friends who were really involved in, in kind of the types of uh, causes, they just, they really cared about American ideals and representing them on Berkeley's campus. And so that, that was, it was a fun time of activism. That's for sure. It's a really fun time. It's a strange place. I, but my son, I was telling him about Berkeley and we, we took him and he was like, why would you not love this country? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, look, we made mistakes. Like, you know, like, like human beings do. Uh, but it is very sad that they don't love this country in spite of their, their mistakes. And we just keep trying to make it great. So... And so not not to dwell on Berkeley for too long, but just one more point. I mean, with all that going on, where in that maturation did you get involved in the college and leading the college Republicans there? Because that had to have just kind of been pouring gasoline on the fire. Yeah, it was. I, there were some folks there who were really organized and active, and I think it, it, was, it was a way to sort of free thought, to speak freely, to organize freely. I remember I was in a class with someone who knew a lot about, like way more about politics than I did. I didn't know anything, but she was in class. She knew all this stuff. And I remember asking her, she was like, I go, you know so much about this stuff. How do you know about this stuff? Are you political? You sound like you might be like a Republican or something. And she's like, no, shh, shh. I what? Why? And she's like, no, no. And I'm like, what? And she's like in like, I think she was in like spirit core or like something very social sports scene. She just won't talk about it, and then finally, she's like, "No, I, I, a lot of my a lot of people won't be friends with me if I, they know that I have these views." And I was like, "That is jacked. That is absolutely jacked." Yeah. And so that was one of the first moments, like early in my time there. And then, and then they'd bring speakers, and people would lose their mind just because the, they disagreed with the speaker. And I was like, "What the heck is going? This is weird." <laughs> um, and I had a mentor. I had a mentor who was President Clinton's domestic policy advisor. Name was Carol. Is Carol Rasco? She's awesome. She, I, I, I got to do a, a trip to D.C. 
and uh, had an internship with her. And she a, a, was a prominent Democrat at the time and just incredible mentor. And so I was like, you could like people of different points of view. What is, I don't understand this. And so it really bugged me. I don't like things that are dogmatic and try to shut people down. People don't grow. I, I want to be on the side of like freedom and dignity and, you know, let's go and uh, have that expectation of people and personal agency. And so that started to stir quite a bit of my passions. And so then we just started organizing and, on, and, and being, I think, on the side of freedom and free expression. And it definitely ticked a lot of people off. I'd get a lot of like, knuckle <laughs> because I was sort of funky at that time of broke. I only shopped at thrift stores. So I'd have like plaid pants and really long shaggy hair. And people were like, you don't, I didn't know you had those views. Why, why, why are you a Republican? I'm like, well, why aren't you? What, like, what was that? <laughs> and the, the, the Republican Party, the Republican Party at the time was a very different animal. And so we got to look at the, the politics of the time. But I never, I just think I was really attracted to, again, ideas and people. I wasn't attacked, attracted to the sort of party politics, but I ended up getting a lot of opportunities and, and being a Republican at Berkeley. It's like a man bites dog type of a story. And so people <laughs> give you a shot. And then I ended up helping lead the California youth politics effort. And then I ended up running nationally and just seeing the sort of idealism and passion of young people across the country and being part of that energy. I think it really galvanized to me that I need to be committed to a life of of service to high ideals. And so over time, uh, that just continued to be a trend. And and somewhere in there, I I did a lot with like uh, government uh, management consulting on government performance. I was just like a social entrepreneur in, in different ways, sometimes politics, sometimes nonprofits. Like we would run teddy bear drives for the Children's Hospital of Oakland and did all kinds of stuff. And that over and over just became this constant kind of theme. But the activism was a lot of fun when you do get people who are very offended by just the idea that you, by your, your simple views that millions of people in the country share. And so being able to be an activist was a really fun experience especially in a place where it's quite hostile. <laughs> and I think it, it does frame, it is sad because the country looks a lot today, or at least, you know, on social media, it looks a lot today like Berkeley's campus does in the sense of like people freak out about somebody's point of view without getting a chance to get to know them, even un- let alone understand the point of view. And so I always sort of thought, I always had this idea in college, like, well, you know, that's it's just Berkeley. It sort of like has its own charm and it's crazy, but whatever, you know, the rest of the country's not. But now it's, it's that sort of uh, dogma and tr- theatrics have spread. And I think that's, that's dangerous for the country. Why do you think that that has spread so much? Oh, man, it's a long answer. Well, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I think you could go back. Uh, let me, I'll try to keep it simple. I, I think there's been an, uh, a combination of things as are Wealth has risen as a country, and so that with that comfort, and as you just sort of start to remove from things that have drawn you together, so institutions have declined, uh, values, like which were usually discussed in schools and in families, and expected of people in business, in government, those, there's not spaces where those conversations are had as much anymore. And so the combination of the, the sort of wealth rising, people getting comfortable being detached from sort of real, real kind of character formation, citizen formation, and then the lack of adversity overall, 
you know, if you think of, I mean, just think of like the, the, from our country, from the founding of our country to the 80s was like conflict after conflict and adversity after adversity. Like you really had to fight to be free over and over and over again. And after the fall of the, first in the 60s, and then I think, and then in the 90s, you just started to see like, I think the lack of pressure combined with the complacency that comes with comfort and wealth, you started to see a deterioration of these institutions that drew people together, and then technology like threw fire on it, and, or threw gas on it. And so now I think you're seeing this sort of collective temper tantrum, and that's, that's happening today. And so it's a time for, uh, I think, renewal, which is a good opportunity, but we just take it a little too caught up. And, and so you know, politics, when, it, when you're at sort of like lowest common denominator, a person's identity or is associated with their politics. And that's just, it's not true. Human beings are complicated. And there's, you know, there's this scene, and uh, if you've ever seen the play Hamilton, Aaron Burr, when he has his... Um, like, oh, shoot. He's like, I should have known that the world is big enough for both of us. And so I think when you, I don't know, it's a, it's a weird, it's like when you don't have adversity, when you get too comfortable, you get too caught up. And that has been a problem for individuals. I think it's especially been a problem for leaders in society. You know, it, I think it's very sad when executives and entrepreneurs don't understand what free enterprise is. They think it means just like making a dollar. I'm like, that's not what it is. It's a very, sacred, special system, uh, dynamic system that's created a lot of opportunity. I think being able to live in a country this special and how and it's a study of history and our place in history, that's a drift. And so I think just a lot of these sort of very sacred ideals are, are taken for granted. I'm on this binge right now where, well, I don't know about a binge, but I'm, I'm reading as many sacred texts as I can. And so I just finished the whole Bible and um, I'm gonna move into the Quran next. But one of the things you, you, you notice when you read these ancient texts is like they talked about high ideals and best self and generational progress, posterity, prosperity, uh, duty. Like these are, it just doesn't compute as much today. This sort of like high expectations of it. You see this stuff on self-help shelves, but it's not, it's not just suffused into who we are in the way like the Russian says to me, you walk like you're free, right? You know, it's like I might, you know, walk with a little pep in my step. But that, that's very different than, I think, you know, this idea of sort of walking like you're free and, and you take that responsibility in a very sacred, very kind of cherished way. So I, don't know, there's, I think there's a lot of trends, but, I, you know, brand new institutions, complacency, wealth, lack of adversity, we're a victim of our own success. I mean, I think those are the types of technology expediting all that. I think those would be the basic reasons that I'd give. So see, Bob, it's an answer like that that just immediately piqued my curiosity when I first sat down with Michael yeah. and Telluride. It was like yeah. I'm like, this could be a six hour podcast. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Multi-series. I, I, I got mean, like nine levels I want to go down here. You know, he oh, yeah. he he talked about you know, me walking in and knowing I was from Texas with a little swagger. Like it was instantly met with his just enthusiasm and just this kind of thought process and evaluation and just finding meaning and purpose and just being a better person the next day that just, I was like, Hey, I, I need to sit down with this guy more. And so pretty quickly after introductions, you know, it was like, well, what do you do? And he started telling me about 
Gen Next and the three pillars. So if we can pivot a little bit, uh, Michael, just start telling us about how you got involved and your climb to CEO. Well, it's actually kind of funny when I when I I obviously have this sort of deep purpose in me. And when after I finished a lot of these political experiences, I didn't go into it, but it I was running against a lot of really when I was involved in it, there were a lot of corrupt people on the other side. Like you thought of everything you didn't like of Republicans and politics. I I've got to experience all of that. And I think all there was a lot of pressure to be disenchanted after those experiences. I ran this national political campaign and um, I was the candidate. Well, I say I it was a team of people who ran, but I was the candidate. And um, it was an un- unbelievable experience, but it was just like, you know, it was some pretty sad in many ways. And I was trying to figure out, okay, I don't want politics to be my pathway to make a difference in the world. I don't know. I didn't know what that was. And so I was trying to get a job. I was, I was thinking, well, maybe I should get away from this do-gooder stuff and figure out a way to make money. Because I'm broke. And I was... <laughs> And I was trying to get a job at like McKinsey or Boss Consulting or something like that or in real estate. And so somewhere along the way, I met the founders of Gen X who were great human beings, but I met them through the course of this campaign. And, and so the more I got to learn about their vision, one thing that always struck me was like, like anything in business and life, it's like it's going to be driven by who shows up. And what I always noticed about politics is the, the people who showed up were like intense activists or socialites. And, you know, it wasn't enough of, call it normal citizens or leaders, because all the leaders, and by that, I mean, just, I don't mean political leaders, I don't mean, I don't mean ruling class or political class, I mean, like leadership class, like you're in leadership roles. They all thought they were too busy to pay attention to the thing that enabled them to be free. And it always bugged me to no end. And so, but I had no idea how to channel that. And so I'd meet the founders of Gen X and these, these entrepreneurs that are super successful the main founder is a guy named Paul, and he's like, uh, survived the Iranian revolution, you know, almost didn't make it out, rags the riches story. He built the St. Regis uh, Hotel in, in Orange County, California. I remember when I met him, I was like, this is the wealthiest person I've ever met in my freaking life. And I called my mom after the, my meeting with him. I hope he doesn't mind me telling the story. I call my mom and I go, mom, I just met this guy who's so soulful and purposeful, cares so much about this country, but his tie is worth more than my life. It was an <laughs> amazing tie. And she goes, oh, huh, I love that you know that because you worked at Men's Warehouse. And I go, I don't think he's got that <laughs> I don't know where he got it, but he didn't get it at Men's Warehouse. And so um, it was just super cool. Like, you know, here he is, like very polished, very accomplished but cared deeply about the world. And when you heard his story, and he's like, you survived the revolution. And I think that you know, we can't let Americans take for granted that our differentiator is our commitment to freedom and our commitment to achieving freedom together. And leaders in society were the one in, in the US are very committed to that. And I want to draw other leaders in to be very committed to that. Uh, who knows if Iran had had that, there may not have been a revolution. And the world would look very different. And you can see that, you know, there's a lot of research historians, the guy named Toynbee, who had a multi-volume set of like evaluating all major civilizations throughout history. And he concluded that if leaders abdicate, the society is going to fail. And you saw this trend, and this was about um, 50, over 15 years ago. And I was very taken by this, and I was really passionate. And I was like, look, 
okay, let's turn this into like a business model. And so I was, I was actually, I was on my friend's wife's parents' couch. And I had no place to live. So I was, as I said, I was super broke. And I'm like, well, let's write this, let's write this up. And so we turned it into something that would, that would be a community that would draw people who are wildly accomplished, but who actually cared about the world beyond their own financial success. And how do we create an experience that, that helps them be more generational in the way they think about their own life and the society around them? How they get connected to big ideas, how they connected, get connected to deep, purposeful people, and how we could create experiences that draw that out of them. And so along the way, it's now been attracting really incredible entrepreneurs, executives, thought leaders, authors, and we help expose them to, you know, I think the core values that build a free society help, help equip them to leave a better legacy, but like live it today. And then and ex- and then expose them to issues where they could they could make a difference, and that could be like on you know counterterrorism or education or or some other issue. So we started out early on getting it sort of building that out, and then now I've been at it over 15 years, and we have a community across the country of all these really exceptional humans, and we've been able to travel around the world to be exposed to some of these big ideas. I mentioned before going to like Poland and Germany and seeing what it's like to you know have free freedom shock therapy in Poland after they were on the boot of the Soviets and the Nazis and you know how committed they could be to freedom but what the threats are today to their own pursuit of that go to countries like Rwanda and you could see how otherism to you know raging severe bigotry that could lead to a million people being slaughtered in 100 days and then how do you rebuild a country that way or just to here in the United States you're seeing a generational regress uh, in terms of opportunity, and how do we restore that dynamism that we have felt, that ambition, uh, to be exposed to those really big ideas with some of the most talented people in the country? I know it's obviously unbiased, but that gives me hope about it. And so, my starting premise with Gen X was how do you how do you harness the power of of leadership and core ideals, and then and then translate that into an awesome experience that helps make the country better over time. It was a very attractive thing to me, and and so and have been having these founders who were all these impressive entrepreneurs that achieved levels of financial success that I never could even fathom. It was a pretty cool, it's a pretty cool gig, and so obviously, a lot of people, a lot of young people, especially my age, they don't stay in one job for a long time, and I don't have any desire to leave. They're probably gonna have to kick me out, or I'll try to secure. Them. <laughs> but I'm, I'm. This is, I'm deeply committed to turning this into a lasting. Um, institution that could could really advance generational leadership in in our country and and play a big role in helping us make sure the 21st century is is the best century we've ever had. Well, you can just like feel your passion when you talk about it. It's so awesome. And, you know, when you talk about people doing something, I feel like you're just like this. It's, you know, you can tell you love what you're doing for a cause that you so deeply care about and have thought so passionately about i mean it's it's awesome to just hear you talk about all that because you don't you don't see that in a lot of people a lot of it's the you're nine to five and well i can't do anything about this world so i'm just going to live in my little space and control what i can control right it has its trade-offs though to be you know the kool-aid man because (laughs) you know my wife's like Let's let's go to this event with some neighbors or friends, you know, and, I, and it's like, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, 
right. you know, we're like, like bar. It's like what sit down for like, a second, <laughs> trying to try, try to change the world. Oh, what does that mean? And then I kind of get into it. And it's like, okay, <laughs> ah, not my thing. But uh, I have to be undeterred and uh, and just you know, kind of it'll be attracted to the, the the right people will be into it. You wait. So you mentioned Michael. You, I think maybe you said it was the the three pillars of of it. What are the three pillars? Yeah, the three the three issues. So let me give you go further upstream, right? Like the theory of change is attract people with disproportionate influence that they may or may not be aware of, and help create an experience that builds you know relationships and knowledge that helps them live out a more effective legacy. And all that is to make like a, a a freer society across generations. The the issues that we've tackled are economic opportunity, education, and security, because those are sort of those are issues. I have this sort of rubric that I go through to kind of like deconstruct how to think about the world. And I'll look at like what are the core principles? Then what are the issues? Then what are policies, politics, and then call it like history or zeitgeist, whatever the pressure point is on this thing. And so the principles are really how do you build a free society across generations? Like that's the American experiment. Every generation has to commit to that over and over and over and over again in order for freedom to progress. Then the next is, okay, now what issues do we need to take those values and and see them through? And those issues, I think if you, the three stools of prosperity are, you know, are we economically dynamic? Are we educating our kids? It's a moral and economic issue. And then are we, are we safe and principled? And you could, you could debate which one of those issues is more important. You know, I don't know. Uh, Nassim Taleb has a book called Anti-Fragile, and he has a section in there where he, he makes the argument that economic freedom is, is the first one. Like, you don't get anything else unless you get economic freedom. And he sort of assesses these other societies that start to invest in education. It's like you need resources to invest with, and that's a product of free society or economic freedom. But I think at a point of our stage of sort of a, a sort of social development, there really are three. And unfortunately, you get too many people who will say, yeah, you know, I just really care about education. But then you go further and be like, oh, what do you mean? Uh, well, you know, I, I just want the kids to be better, but I hate. And then it's like, okay, so are you, how are you getting involved? Are you getting involved in politics? I hate politics. That you don't care about education because education is a highly regulated thing by politicians. And so being in a being able to kind of deconstruct these issues and see how they play off of each other, I think is is a necessary thing for all citizens, but especially people who are leaders uh, in a free society. So one of the things that um, that I've gotten experience in just the short time that I've been involved that I want you to kind of tell our audience about is the Jeffersonian dinners. And kind of how that came about and the maturation of it. And and then I'll share some insight on my first one. I love that. Thank you. You know, it, it's an interesting thing today. But to my point previously about people are not, there, there's less spaces today where individuals are brought together to go deep, to learn, to reflect, to sort of even draw out their own values. I mean, you think too many people just sort of end up on autopilot. And it's too easy to end up on autopilot nowadays. And so we really wanted a way to take our members who are all like, they're all influential, powerful people. Like all, there's a lot of people who, who want their attention. So creating a space where they feel like this is, you know, this is a place where I'm going to go deep with other impressive people. 
that's a super, uh, it's an important ingredients, important ingredients. And so we needed like a model for that. And we were looking at, you know, who are the best builders of, you know, kind of raging talent uh, and entrepreneurial thought. And the founding fathers were a good example. And uh, Thomas Jefferson used to do this where he, in his home in Monticello, he would get some of the most talented minds and have them discuss a set of values or issues. And we just decided to model that with our with our own community of members. So we'll draw you in. We have a prompt. That prompt might be a time of adversity and the character it shaped. The type prompt might be American values and what your experience with them is. It might be uh, gratitude, might be ambition, might be wealth. And what you find is to take some of those things that I just riffed on kind of things that are thrown around, but to say, no, no, for about three hours, you're going to like think and reflect and share these things that people gloss over all the time. You find that people get really, uh, they get really deep and they get, they grow as people and they grow in relationships. Uh, so that's a, that's a big part of our experience for our own community to get people thinking. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing experience. Um, you know, you, back to your point, whether you call it your bubble or your comfort zone or your friend network, real quickly, you can just hang out on the surface. And you can still have a good conversation, but it's not a great conversation. It's, it's the passion that Bob and I have for this podcast of we want to have great conversations, not what you see on a headline. Or <clears throat> I was counting this morning on the political ads I saw you know, liar and doesn't tell the truth like 15 times in 10 different commercials. I mean, it's just, it's bombarding every day of every minute up to this election. But I sat down in this backyard, it was a beautiful night, and we dove into American values. And it was that feeling like, Bob, you know this because you've learned Spanish, when your mind just clicks and all of a sudden, you're just going in Spanish and you're having dreams in Spanish. And you just can't turn it off. I got home that night and I don't think I went to bed till like three o'clock in the morning, just thinking through all the cool points that were made, how my point of view changed 50 different times in the course of the dinner. I mean, it was just like, where has this been? You know, this is so thank you guys so much for providing that's, that's that platform. Incredible. It was just fantastic. I love that metaphor of, a, of, a, of it drawing you into a new language, a new wavelength in many ways. And I, I, I do think it's important. And it, and it raises, it doesn't just make the country better. Um, I think it'll raise, it raises your game. One, in the way that I think you start to approach your family, you start to think about your priorities, your employees, get new ideas about things that you never thought you would have picked up on. And so we do this in a way that we have our own sort of method for doing it. You know, the idea of like getting people together to talk, like that's not novel, but the way we go about doing it of how we curate the topics, how we curate the people in it, how we structure the evening, um, are all sort of our very distinct approach to it. And I've, I've seen more, more grown men and women cry in, uh, in these experiences, uh, than I ever would have thought imaginable. And it's just super cathartic. It's, it's needed. And in, in today's world where everybody's expected to be on and brand and, blah 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 it's like you know hey i want i want the real you because iron's not going to sharpen iron otherwise let's do it you know another amazing byproduct that i didn't even really understand going into it and, and michael it goes back to you know raising your children and the importance of that and talking to them and 
the amazing conversation you had in the in the hot tub with your son. <laughs> that, that, that was that was awesome. Um, is the 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 evening before when we had gotten the topic, uh, I took my family to dinner and brought it up to them, and getting a you know a fourteen year old daughter and a twelve year old daughter's perspective on what American values meant to them. I mean, it just blew my mind. And how quick they were able to pivot and go deep and really think about it. And, you know, it was a 180 degree difference than the normal conversation we would have had over dinner. And at the end of it, they enjoyed it, too. I mean, it's like we've got to do that and pierce into the minds of these kids because they've got it. We've just got to bring it out. Exactly. And they, I think the powerful thing, too, is that they see you thinking about that. And our kids are not observing us being deep and purposeful. As collectively, they don't they don't see that. You know, we we know that time at dinner is down. Um, family focused family time is down. There's just everybody's attention is very divided. And and so kids are not seeing their parents or just I would say parents, adults really thinking deeply about the type of world they want to create and the type of values they want to live by at all. And I don't think schools are doing this all that well either. And so then where are you going to learn it? And if you don't learn it, it's going to be lost. Have you read uh, Meditations, Marcus Aurelius? Marcus Aurelius, yeah. Yeah. So that that book is literally with me all the time. I'm like, I'm ready to get a second copy because I've I've gone through it just so many times. And, And you talk about, like, if you read that book and you really dive into that and you go, well, the stuff this guy was thinking about and how he was reflecting on things compared to the way, you know, I think before I started to have a lot of like, I love studying the Stoics and like my executive coach now that I work with today, like really is pushing me on doing that stuff. And it's like, listen, I don't need you in business books. This is where you got to spend your time. You got to spend your time on you, spend your time on your worldviews figuring out what your purpose is. And like, I heard you like deep thinking and free thought, that stuff is, it's so important. And then you also like having the ability to like, I love this idea of these dinners because just to sit there and listen to other people and get their thoughts and not interrupt them and just ask questions and not just immediately jump to like, going back to what you were saying earlier with the society today, like jumping and being like, well, this is my opinion. I believe this. And I, I, I'm not even hearing what you're saying. It's it's crazy. It's amazing how in human interaction nowadays, mm-hmm. uh, one thing we've done with our team when we have retreats is uh, we'll do this exercise where you just ask somebody, you, you all should try this. It's a, it's a very interesting experience. But you basically take two people on your team or just two people and, and have them, one person talks, just tells about themselves or their day for um, 60 seconds and doesn't, but doesn't, the other person cannot say a word. They just listen. And then the other person does it. And what you become aware of is how much your thoughts are as loud as their message to you. And that's, that's noise. And so getting, getting your head clear, I think, is, is obviously very important. But in terms of the Marcus Aurelius and the, the ancients and the Stoics and um, even just going you know, kind of post-Renaissance, Take a system like free enterprise and capitalism and the opportunities it's, it's afforded billions of people throughout the world now. That followed deep, deep thought by Adam Smith, not about the invisible hand 
and the the price and manufacturing of a pin or a pencil, it followed thought about about human beings and what they value and and how they interact with one another. He had another book because Adam Smith had uh, Wealth of Nations and he had the Theory of Moral Sentiments. If you want a good summary for a contemporary audience of Theory of Moral Sentiments, uh, there's a book called Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. And But what he comments on, both Adam Smith and then um, Russ Roberts, who wrote the, the other book, is that human beings want to be lovely and they want to be loved. And, and for some reason, being loved is completely out of whack from being lovely today. And so what the Marcus Aureliuses of the world challenge us to do is to figure out what, it, what does it mean to be lovely? What does it mean to be good? What does it mean to stand for something? And it's unfortunate that a crisis or adversity is what brings that out of us. As a parent, that freaks me out because I don't want my kids to be raised with the same way I was. I want my kids to have a really good life, unconditional love, and just be the best version of themselves and be expected to be the best version of themselves. And therefore, I'm going to shield them from adversity, right? And so as a society, we live in this sort of wealthy period of time. We're being shielded from a lot of adversity. We're not stopping to think about what matters. And so the only way that you could, that you could make sure that you could grow in the absence of adversity is by constantly being reminded that you've got to commit to those values over and over and over again. You've got to think about it. Otherwise, someone's going to threaten, threaten you and attack you into being that way. I mean, every war, every war throughout history, um, I think, is, is had a, a spring out of it of, oh, shoot, I should have been better. I should have had higher ideals. And I just don't, as a parent and as a society, I don't want us to go down that road. So thinking about the election being right around the corner and the mission of Gen Next and possible future Gen Next members listening to this podcast, what would you tell them? Like, what, what do we need to be thinking about? What do we need to be doing? And where are we headed? Not, not just for the next four years, but for the next 40. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I think that's exactly it. I think for anybody out any entrepreneurial person, well, any person, but, you know, my, my wheelhouse are for people in, in leadership roles, is I think to seek wisdom, to really re- be introspective on your own sense of purpose, to really think about the long view. Uh, one of our members had a saying, he's like, I want to see, I don't want to look at the moment. I want to see through the moment. And I think leaders have to do that more than anybody right now. And so stop, think, reflect, build community, look for things that structure, look for things that institutions, look for things that structure this into your life. And so, you know, we're, we're one way of doing that, but there's other ways for other people of like, you have to do it. And I, you constantly hear from entrepreneurs, oh, I'm really busy. I'll do that when I retire. Screw that. It is absolutely something that needs to be woven into your, into your life completely. Otherwise, your, your legacy will lack luster. Your sense of fulfillment later in your life will lack luster. But I think most importantly, society is going to be worse off. And, and today, I think the reason why the election feels so nuts is not because of politics. I, 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 it's because of our culture. And, and that's it. I mean, politics reflects our culture. And that's just how it works. So if you really, really want a better political discourse, well, then you know, think about how you discourse with others. Do you have an opinion? Uh, are you shutting down other people's opinion? Are you treating people really well? Are you trying to learn? 
And if you also, and let's say you do do that, but you're, uh, but you want to see things different in politics, then start financially supporting people who are in it because it's really expensive to run campaigns. It's hard to get your message out. Get out your checkbook and help good people. Go volunteer. Run for office yourself. But I think the the real space, the the long, the highest leverage, longer term space to make a difference, which is not sexy in today's world of instant gratification and scale. It is. It is really just: Are you being? Are you informed? Are you clear on your values? And are you surrounded with other people who are going to hold you accountable to those? And in the in aggregate, if we do that as a country, everything starts to get better. You know, you have a you have a network effect, a flywheel of kind of goodness. And so, I would say that for anybody who's sort of caught up in 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 the election. And so, for me personally, I don't, I do not, I do not watch the news. I don't pay very little attention to sort of what's on social media. Uh, and so I try to wait a few days to kind of get caught up. But most of the things that I try to read are, I think, much deeper, more developed thoughts. But it does. It takes effort. I mean, everybody's really, really busy. And so you got to carve it into your life. It's just, I think that's just, that's important. And I, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to come across like cynical about politics. I think it's really important to be politically involved super important to be politically involved. I just, somehow we got the idea in this country that that's like, that's the way. And that has not been, that's what, that's politics was, the all encompassing politics was for, for dictators, not for free societies. For free societies, that was like, everybody does all kinds of things. And it's more dynamic and humans flourish. That's how it should be. You know, I was thinking back, um, just thinking about this election to like, conversations that I would have with my grandfather, who was, a, I mean, a very, very stout Democrat, you know, back 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, that really his beliefs and his way about going about his life and his family and his faith matched a little bit more to at least the the center version of the Republican Party today. And so, you know, there's been that shift but like, what's the next shift? I mean, are we going to, is there going to be a third party or a fourth party or something that comes out of nowhere that nobody thought about? What, what are your, what are your thoughts around that? I don't know about uh, a third party, but I, and there are opportunities for reform. I think there's new ideas percolating on, you know, choice rank voting and um, trying to get more diversified representation. There's interesting stuff like that, but I, I think going a little further upstream, the 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 sort of the Republican Party before Trump was basically the the Reagan coalition, and that that coalition doesn't really exist anymore. And the issues they were organized against and uh, organized against don't. Even, I mean, the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore, and so some of those issues I think have have gone adrift. And then and and there's a similar dynamic with the Democratic Party. I think both we're living in a time. This is another factor, I think, of why things are so messy. Uh, they just don't. Just I think this explains the least. But we're we're living in a time of political realignment, and and so there's there's new coalitions being formed. There's there's new interests being formed because society is being reordered in many ways. And you got you know the gig economies on the rise. There's much more movement of information of people. Uh, relationships have broken down. Institutions, especially, have broken down. And so you're, I don't, I don't, I don't know what the crystal ball is. I would just bet that neither party is going to look the same 
today uh, or look the same in 20 years or to your to the 40-year horizon as it does today. And that's not like a crazy statement. That's like, I mean, look throughout history. Right, <laughs> the yeah. wigs weren't around anymore. And so you you got um that's just gotta be a, a trend. And so I think that there there is realignment going on. Trump is a disruptive force, um, to like him or not, in politics, in government, and in society. And I think he's rep- he's not only a disruptive force in, in and of himself, he's representative of disruptive forces. And so, um, and, and that's just the, and is what it is sort of, sort of thing. So I think that the more that we could kind of like see that and just sort of see it for what it is and chill and identify issues that I think people really care about. And that's a, that's a, we'll, we'll be better off as a, as a people and as a country. We, I was talking to a, a friend and, uh, he made the comment of, you know, man, it would have been great this year as we look at this election that's coming up to have like this was such a year to have some leader, like a great leader step up to really bring this country back together. You know, when it is a divided that things seem to be pushing further and further apart. It's like, man, it would have been great. This would have been such a pivotal year to have somebody to step up. But, you know, you you look at that that role of the president and he's like. You know, that used to be something you're a kid and you go, man, I really I want to grow up and be the president. And it's like, do you have kids saying that anymore? It's like because of all the noise that's there. You know, after the first presidential debate, my son wanted to listen to the band, the band of Brothers soundtrack because I think he wanted to, like, cleanse himself. and listen. To- <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but the um, he's like, I want to take a shower. I don't know. Like, anyway, but, you know, that I think that. I have mixed feelings about that. On, on the one hand, obviously, we love the great leaders because they're an archetype and, and they, they help clarify a lot of what's going on individually and collectively. I actually think, but it, it, and let's say you, you look through the lens of the great leaders, the, uh, and let's say in the United States, they also, if, if, you, if you study history, they followed uh, pre-existing movements and efforts. Like they were risen in a tide. And that's the thing that we're missing. And so it's, it's not so much uh, we need a leader to come clarify for us. Like, look, I, I love what, you know, Abraham Lincoln and Ronald Reagan and um, JFK. Like, I love what these leaders were able to do in giving us confidence and vigor and vision. So I, I don't want to discount that. I think it's important. But what, what is more important is the sense of vision and entrepreneurship, like civic entrepreneurship that our citizens have. That's way more important. So what I would say to anybody who's like, man, I wish we had a better leader. Like, have you ever seen the South Park episode? This was during the 2000 election of the, the, the douchebag and the turd sandwich running against each other. For- <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. So like, I totally get that. But like, yes, it's a bummer that we don't have the, that we have the, 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 the turd sandwich and, and the douchebag. But, but look at the student body. What is the student body paying attention to? That's why you have uh, the turd, the turd sandwich. So if it's the same thing, I think in, in the country, if, if you're dissatisfied with the options, I think just really take stock of like, well, am I spending any time and attention in my life to learn, to be in sort of community relationships that are, that are based in sort of values and vision? Am I thinking about the type of country that I want to live in. And that doesn't just mean like the political position that I want to tackle. 
uh, or issue I want to tackle. It just means like, am I, am I thinking about that? Do I represent that? Do I vote? Am I somewhat informed when I vote? And if the answer is no, which statistically it's mostly no today, then of course you're going to get that. But if the answer starts to be yes, and there's this sort of civic renewal, and I think especially of people with high leverage in society, and those are entrepreneurs and executives who have a deep sense of purpose, that we all say that like being an executive is a lonely job. Being a CEO is a lonely job. We know that. And so go deep with that loneliness. Don't just go deep like, man, it sucked to like lay these people off or hire these ton of people or do my re- business repositioning or my PL or which acquisition. Go deep on what does it mean to be a capitalist in the most prosperous country in the world? How do you represent free enterprise well? Uh, how do you represent being a leader in a free society? How do you how do you draw people in to being deeper in their own sense of values? Do they, what do you people think when they think of you? You know, do they think of like that person's a super impressive entrepreneur or do they think like that person has character? And somewhere it turned into status and it, it wasn't about uh, values. If we could turn that tide, especially with entrepreneurial humans, a lot of the people you guys have had on your, on your podcast, I mean, they, they, they share this, but like, like attracts like. And I think that you're, um, we're, not, we're not seeing enough of that in, in the country right now. Well, Michael, turning back to you, and we talked about this in kind of our prep call, you know, this has just been hitting me more and more that this medium and capturing these stories and bringing on incredibly interesting people like yourself, we're capturing it and it's going to be there forever. And your kids can go listen to this 10 years from now when they're off at college, when they're traveling around the world, whatever they're doing. When you're when you're when your son's running for president down the road, I'm voting for him. I like him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's a great, he is a, he is a great one. When he's either running for president or hanging out at that uh, hot springs without any clothes on, right? <laughs> exactly. Or maybe both. Running, maybe he'll he'll be running a kegger at the at the White House. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but but in thinking about the the power of of being able to capture words and stories and meanings and truth, what would you say to your kids? Why that's important? I, you know, I actually think about, we, we try to talk to our kids a lot, like at family dinner. Right now we're in this thing where we're reading a book, just kind of like, would you rather? Uh, it's a would you rather book for kids. One of my, a good, a good friend of mine sent it to us and um, they love it. And so it's simple things like, you know, would you rather live on a plane or on a boat? And for little kids to be like, why, why? And to, to, to not just get their answer, but ask them why and um, ask them why a few times and get them, get them drawn out. And so I think trying to find a way to, to teach kids that they, every single one of them has a purpose to deliver in this world. And every day should be a, an effort to be very conscious of that. And in order to do that, you got to be, you have to be aware of your thoughts. You have to be aware of what's going on around you. You have to be aware of your trend, your trajectory overall. And, and another, another way of saying that is like, what's your story? And, and what's this, what's this character made up of? And what does this character stand for? This character being you. But one thing that being a parent has, it's started to really draw out of me. And I, and I think it's a, it's a, 
it's a purpose that you guys are really fulfilling with your podcast is is to be more aware of my own story and be more aware of where these where these things come in and shaping me. There's a lot of my life that I've kind of blocked out. And um, just recently, I've started trying to really dig in more on uh, what were these moments and what do they mean to me? I'm learning a lot about my mom right now and trying to ask her more questions about her upbringing. And I've, I learned that there were like stories about adoption in her life and, and how these things generationally, if you're not aware of them and you don't have these stories and you don't learn about your story, you don't share them with other people, they're going to be lost. So I really hope my kids are, are very aware and committed to a life well-lived and, and make it a point to show them that. In a, in a, in a very extreme case, we took a group of um, D-Day veterans to D-Day for the 75th anniversary and, or to Normandy for the 75th anniversary. And it was so stunningly beautiful and sad how surrounded these veterans would get. These guys are 90s, in their 90s, 100 years old, and they're getting surrounded by, I remember this, this young person, uh, 10-year-old girl, ran up to the soldiers, to the, these elderly men, hugged them, and said that you saved, you liberated my grandmother. And the grand looks over and the grandmother's crying. And, and that was over and over and over again and they had not been back and it made them emotional these soldiers and one of them was like how is this special for you and like that and all of them said these stories need to be told we'll forget about what can be lost or what's going to be required if these stories aren't told so but the stories need to be told based off of the theme and uh and and some greater way of living, and so I, I hope that my kids and all are very aware of that and committed to that. Be, be a good story, man. Make sure your life is a good story. That's a hell of an answer again. <laughs> <laughs> Knocking them out of the park. <laughs> For sure. Well, well, Michael, we're we're uh, incredibly appreciative of your time. You know, your it's a, it's a beautiful story. Just the way you go about thinking through things. We need a lot more of that in society and leadership and business and politics, just across all the mediums that we talked about. So we really appreciate your, your time, your insight, your wisdom, your knowledge, your passion, and just keep doing what you're doing, man. It's, it's powerful. You guys too. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. You're at a, at a time when, uh, purpose and connection and you know real thoughtfulness is, is missing you, y'all are filling a pretty good void so thank you awesome thank you very much it was great to great to spend time with you today thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the climb if you enjoyed the episode please consider subscribing and if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.